So as I um, mentioned, um, step two, the second month, and we're going to meditate in a minute. Oh, we're being recorded. Okay, I understand. Um, I, I uh, gave a talk for the Buddhist Recovery Network actually last Sunday morning, and it was about mindfulness of breathing, and it was kind of about the sutta and very Buddhisty kind of thing. And then at the end, the first question I got was, how do you work the step three with the higher power? And I was like, oh, here we go again. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, maybe I should not run away from uh, the uh, persistent questions uh, that seem to come up with people trying to uh, reconcile Buddhism and the 12 steps. So uh, for that reason, I'm going to address that topic somewhat tonight through the lens of step two, which says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's quite a step, actually. Got a lot, a lot to it. Um, in any case, that will come later after we meditate. And... Uh, and so let's start with some sitting, which always for me and starts with loosening my belt because <laughs> my breath needs to get deep into my belly. Uh, and the good thing about Zoom is unless I point my camera down, you can't see me. All right, sorry. All right, that's just really... Um, So I will give some meditation instructions as I like to do. And, um, and usually this will be about a 30 minute meditation. And usually what I do is I guide it for about the first half of it for around 15 minutes. And then I leave the rest of it silent. And that's because I'm trying to kind of satisfy uh, two constituencies, one which really wants instruction on how to meditate and the other people who just want a quiet sit. So um, I don't know if that's a, if anybody will be satisfied with that. Maybe that just leaves everybody slightly, slightly satisfied or slightly unsatisfied. Um, I just realized that my phone is not on silent, which is not good. Okay. So, okay. Beginning, beginning, finding a posture, whether it's sitting, if, you, if that's workable for you, although you can certainly lie down if it's not comfortable for you to, to sit upright. Well, you know, the posture, the, uh, the upright posture is really meant to help you to stay alert. But we also want to be able to relax. So we don't want it to be a rigid posture. You know, and in these times where we're each in our own space, you know, you get to sort of set up your own sitting situation. And I hope... I hope that people figure that out for themselves in a 
in a helpful way. It's, it's actually quite important. You know, the traditional form is to sit on the ground on a cushion, the legs crossed, and that's really a wonderful posture. It's not one I can assume comfortably anymore, but if you can do that, it's a great way to have a very stable, solid posture. So however you're sitting, you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze so you're stepping out of the visual realm, turning the attention inward. And you might then just notice the breath in whatever way it shows up for you. So that might be the feeling of the chest rising and falling or the air coming in and out. The breath shows up in many different ways in the body. This is just a kind of starting point to bring your attention into the present moment through the breath. And then noticing how you're holding your body And trying to release any tension, tightness. So letting the breath soften the body. See if, see if that makes sense for you and how, how you might do that. Let's take some time just to scan the various sensations in the body. I like to start with the head. Some people like to start with the feet. Either way. If you're starting with the head, just feeling your face, the jaw, feeling the eyes. Feeling the lips. Relaxing all the muscles in the face. And releasing the shoulders. Feeling the arms, the hands, just feeling life in the body. All the subtle sensations, energies, 
moving the attention through the torso. Here we feel the breath moving the chest and belly, the back even expanding and contracting. And feeling the sensations through the hips and pelvis, the weight of the body sitting, and the legs and feet. So this simple brief scan can awaken awareness of the body. We spend so much time in our heads just to acknowledge the different sensations in different parts of the body really can change how we feel in a given moment. And bringing the attention then back to the breath. And now Being aware of a particular point of sensation in the breath, either the nostrils, the air touching as it comes in and out, or the movement of the belly rising and falling. And this becomes our anchor point, the place to which we return our sensation, our awareness each time the mind wanders. Becoming familiar with the sensations at that point where you're focused, either the nostrils or the belly. We're not looking for anything in particular. It's not like you're supposed to feel something. Rather, it's just that by being aware of the breath, we are by definition present. We can only feel the breath in the present moment. So it just helps us to be here.
the breath can be simply used as this touch point. Grounding of mindfulness in the present. We can also use the breath to more broadly calm the body. So in that way, we kind of feel the breath with the body and let the breath very naturally as it will bring a calming effect to the body. We can also use the breath to help us tune into the emotional energy or the mood, the feeling tone that's present for us in any given moment. So here, it's a kind of breathing into the felt experience, breathing into your mood, breathing into your emotion. This takes a, a kind of openness, a willingness to feel whatever is present in that area of experience. Just letting the breath soften and open, give space. with these feelings, letting them move through. Anytime we get confused or lost in thoughts, or if we're struggling to accomplish something, we can just drop all that and come back to the simplicity of breathing in, breathing out. Always a reliable friend, a trustworthy friend, the breath.
So now we can move into the open, silent portion of the sit, just working with the breath. Letting go of thoughts as they arise. Staying open to whatever draws the attention. And then again, coming back.
So um, thought maybe I'd just open it up if there's any if there are any questions about meditation tonight. Um, just well, you know, there'll be time for other questions later. But just uh, and I know maybe sometimes right after a sit, your mind's kind of empty, so you don't have anything on your mind. But uh, Jacob, you got your hand up there. Hi. Hello, how you doing, Kevin? All right, how are you? Doing well. Um, I'm into uh, insight or Vipassana meditation. And my question is, I usually count my breaths from one to 10 and then start over again. Are there any other exercises that I could do? Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, breath counting, you know, uh, sure. The, uh, the, I guess I can give you a couple of thoughts and, um, but first I would just say generally, not to get too attached to a particular form or particular exercise, you know, use them, experiment, use them as they, when they're helpful. At a certain point, when the mind gets fairly quiet, it can be helpful to just drop any kind of form that you're working with and just be with the breath or be even more generally kind of with the mind. But Barring that, uh, some of the some of the things that are helpful. Uh, one that's often taught in the Burmese style is called noting, where you first of all you start by noting the in and out breath, just saying silently to yourself in out, and then if a thought arises and you realize you're thinking, then you make the mental note thinking thinking, and you come back to the breath. If there's a noise. Hearing, hearing, you know, a smell, you might go smelling, you know. So it's just kind of noting, making a mental note of whatever is kind of predominant in your experience. And that can be refined and, and it can be very helpful and kind of revealing to refine that into kind of noting the type of thought that's happening. Like, for instance, when there's like a judgment arising or a fantasy, or a memory, uh, you know, uh, a resentment, you know, just, just kind of like starting to notice the patterns of thought, just by noting them, not, not thinking about them or analyzing them, but just making the mental note. And each time you notice, then coming back to the breath. Um, that's that practice that was kind of one of the first practices i learned and i found it very revealing uh just and sort of uh, you know to see kind of how my mind operates um what else would i suggest see i work more on a visceral level with my practice where it's more like i'm with my breath and then as i was describing kind of i'm with my the breath is there, but then kind of in the body and in the felt experience. So for me, it's less verbal 
you know, the when you're using words or numbers, there's a certain kind of artificiality about that. You know, it's it's kind of. Um, I was just reading something uh, Venerable Analio says about this. Uh, I can't quote it, but but it just can become kind of mechanical rather than being with the kind of natural experience of just breathing and just being present. So I would use the counting or any practice, like depending on how long you're sitting, like in a 30 minute sit, I would do something like that for the first 10 minutes or so, and then kind of try to go into something more open so that you're not just because it, the counting or or noting all of those kind of forms where you're uh, kind of imposing a particular approach, um, they uh, they limit the mind in a certain way. They're they're kind of they're, well. I guess the thing that 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 concerns me is that they they become kind of about controlling the mind, you know. And and so we have to be really careful about this. I mean, it's a tricky thing, right? Right effort. Like I want to make an effort. And of course I'm trying to impose some control in a sense on the mind, but I'm not trying to suppress the mind either. You know, so if the mind really wants to go and do stuff, sometimes it's better to just kind of let it go a little bit and then kind of gently reel it back in rather than, no, don't go there, you know, and trying to hold it back. And I don't know if that, you know, makes sense, but, uh, you know, keep, keep, keep experimenting, you know. Um, I love Thich Nhat Hanh's approach. I don't know if you've ever read any of Thich Nhat Hanh, but he has some very nice practices that are verbal, that are, but that are kind of, words that are kind of meant to prompt uh, pleasant mind states. Um, so. Thank you. Okay. I hope awesome. that's helpful. Yeah. Thanks. Good. Oh, okay. Richie. Hey. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Thank you. All right. Um, you kind of, you know, in a way, you just kind of answered my question because I'm, I'm trying to find the balance of, you know, I'm used to having an object, yeah. you know, like we call, talk uh, a banana to give to the monkey mind, you know, whatever that particular focus yeah. is. Yeah. And the balance between staying with that because I, you know, if I just totally let everything be okay and let mm -hmm. all my wandering mind be okay, I'll just <laughs> right. be off there wandering. Yes. So, yes. so you addressed it kind of the balancing of the effort, and I've been um, I've been following the, the breadcrumbs of the people you've mentioned in your books and things like that. And there, there's an object that. Ajahn Amaro talks about inner listening. Yes. And that sound and everything. Yes. And I, you know, I wonder, I'm starting to play with it a little bit. I don't know if you have any experience with that, if that's appropriate to mm -hmm. ask at this point or sure. not. But thank you. 
Yeah, thanks, Richie. Um, good, good general question and good specific question. So I'll, I'll go to the specific. First of all, the, the Ajahn Amaro is well known. Uh, he's an English monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. And actually, he learned this practice from Ajahn Sumedho, who I'll, I'll put their names in the in the chat so people can see their names. They're, I don't think it's uh, obvious how to spell those names, but they're they're important uh, people that you can find them very easily, of course, on the internet. Ajahn Sumedho was the first Western student of Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest master, and Ajahn Amaro is one of his uh, senior students. And, and so the practice, they call it the nada sound. It's the sound or the sound of silence. When you listen to the sound, and I'm explaining this for the, for the rest of the group. So, so it's when you listen to the sound in your ears, and it's something that unless you have tinnitus or tinnitus, I don't know how it's pronounced, um, you don't probably know that it's there <laughs> until you stop. If you're in a very quiet place and you kind of listen and you'll notice that there's kind of a humming or a white noise, I think of it. And so they, instead of paying attention to the breath, they pay attention to this, which points to the fact that the object of awareness, it's not so important what it is. You know, the breath is very useful, but it's not, we don't use the breath because it's something magical. You know, we use it because it's always there and it's kind of neutral. And so you can just kind of drop in on it and, and it can be used. The breath, the thing I like about the breath, and I've been working with this a lot lately, is the way it can be used to work with feelings in the body and stress in the body and all of that. Um, but but listening to the nada sound is the same thing. You would just be sitting and you would just be listening. And then you'd notice your mind wanders and you would let go of the thought and you would come back to the nada sound. There's really nothing more to it. And it's quite interesting how persistent it is. And even in noisy places, this is one of the really interesting things. You can you can be there can be noise around you that sounds like pretty loud, but you'll notice if you if you get used to this, you'll, you'll notice that you can still tune into it. Like it's operating typically on a, on a frequency that's not, doesn't get blurred out by other sounds. So it, it's not a practice that I've done to a great extent, but at times I just kind of go to it. I don't know why, but just when it seems like that's uh, prevalent, but this more general question and it, and it goes back to, my conversation too with Jacob is this question of um, of effort and and so it the way I think of this is that we need to increase our effort in proportion to the busyness of our mind kind of uh, that's a little bit of a simplification, and there are, there are sort of exceptions to this. But generally, if I sit down to meditate and I find like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how stressed I was, or like, I'm really thinking about that argument I just had, you know, with that friend or whatever. And so there's a lot of mental energy going on. Then I really need to like make an effort to 
like very do something very explicit like counting the breaths or uh, you know noting or um you know doing loving kindness meditation something kind of very substantial and what something that has a strong form as the mind settles as the body and mind kind of settle and you start to get a little bit more uh, quiet going on you know if and when that happens then you can kind of soften that amount of effort and start to sit more i think of it as more organically and we can talk about it in a more formless way where you're not imposing something you're not sort of trying to push out all the noise you know you're there's, there's not it's not overwhelming so you can just kind of sit in this more spacious awareness where there's still there's definitely still you're monitoring what's going on there's still a kind of vigilance but it's not done with a so much structure it's more of a natural experience and that has a real value to develop that uh, because it allows for kind of what Joseph Goldstein calls the natural unfolding of what's of this whole process that that has its own kind of logic and its own sort of um, path way that the mind kind of wants to go in certain places. And when we give it, get when it gets quiet enough and we can just kind of let it go and, and monitor it, then it will tend to go into these deeper places of calm and, and openings of insight on its own. We don't have to kind of um, create the, the, um, conditions for that well we can we kind of i i should maybe take that back we do kind of want to create the conditions but then we want to allow that what comes out of those conditions to happen organically and and that that sort of experience that i'm describing is something that people you know i first experienced that on a, on retreats in in daily practice if you're just if you've never been on a meditation retreat, your mind might not have kind of found these pathways. On retreats, when we do enough meditation in in an intensive, like week-long, 10-day retreat, the mind starts to learn these pathways. And then sometimes outside of the retreats, we can still go to those places that that varies a lot depending upon circumstances. But I I understand that if you haven't kind of... uh, experience anything like this, this might seem sort of abstract or, or um, kind of vague. Uh, and so it really does take the, the time to, of intensive practice to sort of discover this, this kind of realm um, for it to really have, have meaning for people. So, so with all that, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, and thanks for listening. Uh, I, I know I have a hard time keeping answers to questions like this short uh, because there is a lot of subtlety and complexity, and I don't like to just drop in some simplistic answer that uh, kind of distorts the situation. Um, so, um, link to uh, oh, someone put in a link. Oh, well, gee. Uh, Jeff, thank you. Uh, someone put in a link to a talk. Oh, 
whoa, it's starting to play, but I'm going to copy this link and put it into the general chat, uh, which is uh, a talk with Ajahn from Ajahn Sumedho. Don't listen to it now. Well, you can if you want to abandon me. Um, but we're going to take a, a five-minute break. Let's make it a seven-minute break. Uh, and then we'll come back and I'll, I'll talk some about step two and uh, the Dharma and step two. So, so hello again, everybody. Just uh, <laughs> like to scan through, see who's here. Um, so, uh, you know, as I said, I, I want to talk about uh, step two in the context of the Dharma. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to try to necessarily do that in a comprehensive way. This is something because uh, I've been writing about and talking about the steps uh, in this context for so long. I, I guess I, I like to take, try to get, to take different angles. Um, and so uh, I'm, I want to kind of talk about two things. One is just belief in general. And then in particular, the context of belief and higher power in step two. Because obviously when the, when the step says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore sanity, it's suggesting that before we had that belief, we had some other belief. And what I think is important to understand about belief is how much it informs our behavior and our uh, way of viewing the world, a way of understanding the world. And until, until and unless we look closely at that, at how those beliefs come to be, we wind up being kind of just uh, acting on beliefs unconsciously. And uh, I mean, that can be okay, but it's also got a lot of risk uh, to it if we're not conscious of where these beliefs are coming from. So, you know, I, I remember reading at one time that um, most people, most adults wind up registering for the same political party that their parents did. Just for example, you know, in terms of how do our beliefs, where do our political beliefs come from? Where do, you know, when I, when I look at, it's always so shocking to me to see uh, that racism is so persistent and to realize like the beliefs that are behind racism are things that are conditioned into people. They didn't just make it up out of whole cloth. It's something that they heard and they were told and you know, their parents very typically were racist. And, uh, you know, and on the other hand, of course, you know, not all negative, you know, the people that are generous, you know, learn to be generous. All of these 
and the belief that being generous is a good thing, you know, is these, these are things that are just inculcated in us uh, very often without our awareness. And so it's, it's really critical that we really see uh, how credible our beliefs are because they do have such a powerful impact in, in, I think, Burning Desire, my second book, which is really about higher power. I talk about at one time, you know, I, I learned to play the guitar as a, you know, pretty young 12 and, and I started playing in bands and I always just kind of played rhythm guitar because I believed that I couldn't play the lead guitar. And, you know, this is like not a big you know, belief like a political or religious belief, but but one that had a big impact, and and only gradually, when I started to fiddle around, at one point I realized, oh, I'm playing lead guitar. <laughs> you know, let me like, oh, I did, I didn't think I could do, I didn't believe I could do this, and then then I started to apply myself to it. But before before that, I I could have probably you know, developed much quicker if I'd had any belief in myself. I, and I, I look at great athletes. I mean, you know, you guys hear me talk about uh, Steph Curry probably fairly regularly. We, he and I share a birthday. So, you know, we have a lot in common, you know, Albert Einstein, Steph Curry and Kevin Griffin. I mean, you know, what do these people share? Nobody knows. Actually, uh, geniuses, basically, but uh, we'll put that aside. Um. You know, this guy who's the greatest shooter in basketball history can go out and miss 10 shots in a row. And then he'll just take another shot and he'll, he'll take a crazy shot because he believes that they're going to go in. Now, <laughs> that's based on more than just belief. You know, so this is like a critical thing, right? It's like the real, if we can get very diluted with our beliefs, you know, and it's not that beliefs alone change the world, but it's their relationship to cause and effect. It's the way that the belief then affects behavior, and then the behavior reinforces the belief. So Steph started out believing, you know, before he was a great shooter, he believed he could be a great shooter. But he also knew that in order to accomplish that, it was a causal relationship. He had to do the take the karmic steps in order to accomplish that. But because he believed he could do it, he was ready to jump in and, and do all that work. I, I, I mean, I think that's how it, how it works. So there's this, this uh, critical relationship between beliefs and behavior. Because on the other hand, you know, if you just believe you're going to win the lottery and you just keep buying tickets, that doesn't act. Yeah, I mean, you buy tickets, but if you don't look at the likelihood you know, and realize that, oh, it's only one in a billion chances that I'm going to win. You're deluded. You know, I'm, I know I'm going to win this time. It's like, no, you're probably not going to win. And, and even though you are taking the karmic steps involved in winning, you know, uh, it's, it, the likelihood is very slim. Uh, it's like, you know, you know, you have to have to do look at the reality in other words and and um so i just it's not exactly what the step is about but it it, it there is an element of this so so just um 
And just put that out as like a, a mindfulness practice, uh, noticing your thoughts and noticing what your thoughts are telling you. Because a lot of us have very distorted beliefs about ourselves, particularly, as well as about the world, but especially about ourselves, um, and to examine those. So, so step two, you know, this kind of turning point in the steps that that's really the, it's the counterpoint to the, to step one, you know, step one says, we admitted we were powerless, right? And step, so step two says, aha, we've got, we've got a cure for that, right? It's clearly the, the founders of AA who wrote these steps or put these steps together. Um, you know, this was very intentional to sort of set you up as like, okay, you're powerless, but we have a suggestion what you can do about that. So there's a, a few things about this. The, the, the piece that connects with what I'm talking about is that it's trying to get us to believe in the possibility of our recovery. And it's doing that because, again, if we don't believe that we can recover, we're not going to do the work involved in recovery. And so people often, I mean, this is not an uncommon condition with addicts and alcoholics. Oh, you know, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I could never like live without alcohol or I could never get sober or, you know, the, the struggle that people have when they relapse multiple times and then they start to build a belief within themselves that they can't recover, recover just based on that, you know, three or four relapses, which is nothing really, you know. Um, so it's, it's so important that there's this hope, which we could say that's kind of the essence of step two. To me, it is, it's that there is hope there's a possibility of freedom from addiction. Um, but where so many people then get stuck, and so many of the people, particularly who come to my teachings, get stuck, is around the suggestion of what it is that's going to relieve us of our powerlessness, which is you know a power greater than ourselves, or as it says in step three, God. And and people who are either atheists or just don't have any conception of God or have been wounded through traditional religions, theistic religions, you know, can, can really rebel at this or, or, or just feel completely alienated or, or simply not have any kind of context to even think about what this means, because it is the language of the step is very kind of magical, you know, a power greater than ourselves is going to restore us to sanity. Just some mysterious thing out there is just going to do this thing to fix us. You know? I mean, I'm not even really addressing so much the terms insanity or sanity, which is another sort of talk. Maybe it'll come in tonight. We'll see how, how long this goes. But it, it really is a challenging question from a Buddhist viewpoint, 
since the Buddhist tradition does not include a an all powerful God, like a creator God or or an, uh, a a God that intervenes in life in our lives and does things to us for us that we can pray to. So, so we have to look at something a little bit more subtle um, to, to find something that works as a God or, or in the, in the place of a higher power in, in the Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha. And I'll talk about some specific things, but then maybe put it in a bigger context uh, that the practice of mindfulness is very powerful. You know, mindfulness itself has a powerful healing impact. And so that in itself, we could say is a power greater than us. Now, I think we have to maybe, uh, maybe step back a little bit uh, again and look at, what's going on here that this power greater than ourself, the implication and the whole sort of tension here is uh, between self-will and the, and the human capacity to control themselves and their own lives versus not having control over themselves or their lives, you know, and, that's, you know, a perennial kind of philosophical question. But in this context, it's a life or death question, because for addicts, the idea of powerlessness can mean, wow, this thing's going to kill me because it's more powerful than me. But we're, what what I think the steps are saying is, and, and certainly the, the, you know, the big book of AA talks about these kind of struggles people had that our personal efforts to get ourselves sober were never successful. And, and I think never is probably too strong a word, but for, in many cases we're not successful. And certainly the founders of AA found that they could not, they couldn't just will themselves into not drinking. And so it's very convenient then for the, in their sort of framework to then say, well, I, I managed to get sober, but it was not through my will. It was through the will of God, you know? And again, we're, if we don't have that kind of belief system in a God, speaking of beliefs, then we have to find some other way of looking at this. And, and again, I think the Dharma helps us with this because in Buddhism, the very idea of self is challenged, is questioned. So the idea that a self will is going to get us sober is doubtful, right? So this can get really like, whoa, this is sticky now. What? what? We got a problem. Like there's no God, but there's no self. To do. Like what? How the hell am I going to get myself out of this thing? 
Well, first of all, you just have to calm down. <laughs> You'll be okay. And, and indeed, there is this trust, right, in this process, which is outlined, more than outlined, but really laid out in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which is really framed around mindfulness. Every aspect of it really depends upon mindfulness. So, so what we see is that if we can bring in this awareness and, and I would even say like a, a loving awareness into this process, into looking at the powerlessness, looking at the suffering, looking at the addiction and the compulsion, start to change our relationship to it. This is one of the things that mindfulness does. One of the critical things that mindfulness does, it changes our relationship to our experience. It takes us from this relationship of me having this experience to awareness, seeing a process play out. And when we start to see this process play out, we start to see that it's a conditioned process. And this goes back again to the belief, uh, the beliefs I was talking about. That, so if I come to believe that it's possible for me to recover, if I take higher power out of, if I came to believe that it's possible for me to recover, what would be involved in that? Well, the first thing that would be involved in that is to realize that in order to become an addict, certain causes and conditions had to happen. This is the Buddhist approach, right? Karma, which is just cause and effect. Certain causes and conditions happened. I drank, I used over and over. I became addicted, you know simplistic but okay we'll just use that as a framework so if something can be created by definition it can be uncreated so now i'm looking at this process oh so turning it over to a higher power that what i'm turning it over then maybe to a process and then i have to see what is the process right so the process involves awareness kindness. It also involves effort, which we were talking about in the, during the meditation. Very tricky because wait, effort, isn't that self-will? That's why we have to be very mindful of our effort. It's quite possible to meditate or to do any action without it being an act of grasping or self-will, but it requires subtle awareness, mindfulness to see what, what is going on here. The Buddha distinguished acts of craving that are self driven by self-will from skillful, intentional acts, which still have effort in them, which still have the energy and thrust of of trying to accomplish something, but the motivation behind them, the intention is skillful. So the intention to let go, which is the key intention of everything in Buddhism, the intention to let go of our addictive behavior is the key to, to that motivation, to that energy, to that effort, the intention to let go. Not to suppress, 
You know, and this is why practicing meditation and watching that subtle process of the mind of thoughts arising, letting go of a thought rather than suppressing a thought and being able to distinguish that. We start to see the subtle differences and we start to start to see how critical those subtle differences are. When we try to suppress the thoughts or suppress our addiction, there is, we create a countervailing tension. As soon as you're pushing one way, there's something that's going to push back. And so we have to learn to harmonize with the experience. We harm when the craving is there. It's not that we fight it. If we actually open to it, we breathe with it, we feel it, we allow it to be there, but we don't take the next action, which is to act on it. We just allow it to be there. This is the, the one of the powers of mindfulness that we can learn to be with an experience without acting on it. And of course, every addict and recovering addict has, has, figured out some way of doing this because we all have moments, uh, impulses and cravings that arise and learning to hold those feelings and learning to have skillful responses to them, which sometimes are go to a meeting or call your sponsor, you know, uh, meditate, maybe, uh, you know, go get some exercise, do something skillful, right. And the next right action. So this, this power then is not just an, a single thing. Yes, I think that mindfulness is kind of the starting point of it because mindfulness is what actually lets us know that the addictive craving is there. And as I say, it allows us to change our relationship to it. But it also, mindfulness has another component, which is called clear comprehension, which is the intuitive wisdom that arises when we are mindful, the intuitive wisdom to know what would be a helpful response to the present moment circumstances, present moment experience. And this is critical, right? It's not enough to just sit and go, okay, I'm really having a craving. I'm breathing. I'm having breathing. No, we need to like do something. Right. And that's, the the proverbial toolbox of recovery and and this again just to go, put this in very clear terms what we're talking about what we're talking about is cause and effect we're talking about the law of karma which is from my viewpoint the true higher power that we're working with and the distinction of the higher power of the law of karma from any other kind of higher power is that, first of all, it's not uh, a loving power. <laughs> it's just a power. It's it, the way that it operates is dependent upon our relationship to it. So we have to harmonize with the law of karma. If we are out of harmony with the law of karma, then we are going to suffer painful consequences. This is where the letting go of self and the letting go of self-will and the turning it over, step three, maybe we'll talk about it next month, is how it works in Buddhism, is that we're 
turning it over to the law of karma. I'm saying, I've got a choice here. I can go to the bar and have a drink, or I can go to a meeting. You know, there are going to be karmic consequences from either one. Not magic, not like karma is not a magical thing. It's just that if I go to the bar and have a drink, I'm going to drink. And if I'm an alcoholic, probably get drunk. And then, and then, and then, and then, <laughs> and maybe wake up the next day, or maybe not. If I go to the meeting, there's going to be a whole other consequence, a whole other karmic result. I can't, the thing that makes the law of karma a power greater than me is that if I go to the bar and have a drink, I can't just not suffer the consequences. You know, it's just, that's the law of karma. It's not like, not personal, like, sorry, dude, but like, that's just how it works, you know? Now, that doesn't mean that the same results happen every time. I mean, I might go and have just one drink tonight, you know, it might be, you know, next week before I actually get drunk, you know, and I might go to a meeting tonight and it might be like a sucky meeting and I'll be like, ah, that didn't help me at all, but okay. But I didn't drink. Right. So, you know, it's not like there's an automatic, Oh, I was generous. I gave $5 to a homeless person. So now I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket because I'm going to get karma's going to pay me back with no it's it, karma. The law of karma isn't, you know, a, a perfect tit for tat kind of quid pro quo <laughs> to coin a phrase um, or to steal a phrase. But we learn as we learn to understand what is skillful and what is not skillful, much of which we already know, but, you know, in given circumstances, you know, we, we make those choices. We see that over time, the general flow and movement of our life when we're living in harmony with the law of karma is positive. And when we're not, it's not so positive. So, that then brings up, of course, what is the law? What does the law of karma say we should do? It's not all that complicated. You know, there are precepts. There are things like mindfulness. There is understanding intention. And the, the Dharma, the beautiful thing about the Buddhist teachings is how much guidance there really is, and that that it it is really laid out for us. What we have to, what's, what's important to understand about karma is that it's not just about external actions, that it actually starts with the inner life, that our beliefs, back to that, that our thoughts, that our impulses are actually the origination of karma. And then it moves into speech and then into and into action, those other manifestations. But what is so important about a meditation practice is that it helps us to become much more familiar with what's going on in the inner world. You know, because it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, I meant to, you know, oh, why did that happen? I meant to do this. I, I didn't mean to do that. 
but that's very often because they didn't have the self-awareness to see what their true impulse was, right? They're fooling themselves. They're not being honest with themselves. So mindfulness, first and foremost, introduces us to our own mind, introduces us to our own thoughts, our own intentions, our impulses. And we start to see the self-deception and the denial and all of that, right? We start to become more honest with ourselves and see the reality of that. And that then gives us the the initial stages of guidance in in our path of changing our lives as we as we have to do uh, to recover. You know, we know that that re- true recovery, as opposed to just sobriety or being clean, is more than the behavior of not using. You know, that, as they say, stinking thinking, you know, can continue on. It, even when one has given up this, the that external behavior, and that and if you've been around the recovery world for a long time, you've seen people who have been sober and you know going to meetings for twenty years, and they're still not happy, <laughs> and they might still be kind of unpleasant people to be you know because they haven't really done this inner work. They they saw they see recovery as being purely a mechanistic process, not one that's a spiritual transformation that begins with the internal experience and begins with then with our beliefs and, and this whole, uh, you know, system of belief, not just belief in a higher power, but, but our belief about how the world works. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. uh, there's uh, at the in the time of the Buddha, there were some kind of wild belief systems, uh, and not all that wild when you consider some of the things that people believe today. So, but people would come to the Buddha with this list of beliefs and and magical what what I would think of as irrational things, and the Buddha would invariably you know try to straighten them out. <laughs> Um, but it, it's just interesting that, 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 you know, these whole, uh, formulas for believing in, in the, how the cosmos works and all, all this, um, have been around for thousands of years and people have been getting lost and confused and trying to find, uh, magical answers to really more simple problems again what i love about the buddha is that he kind of has these very direct ways of of looking at things just causally so we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and uh you know and i will just touch on this idea of sanity in the buddhist context because i think in the steps indeed it's not referring necessarily to clinical insanity. Although, you know, in some cases, for sure, you know, many of us have been institutionalized for periods of time in our lives. But but really talking about the distorted thinking and belief systems that we fall into, you know, and the, and in Buddhism, it's called delusion or ignorance. And it's not understanding that everything is impermanent, that 
clinging causes suffering, that self is a creation. These these profound truths, uh, fundamental truths that the Buddha points to as really sanity, like seeing the world uh, clearly, you know, seeing the truth of things, not not living in our delusion uh, or magical thinking. So I hope this is helpful tonight. There's a lot of words as Dharma talks usually are, uh, but um, you know I hope you'll you know work with with this self examination around belief systems and see what's see what's helpful, what's working for you, and what might uh, you know benefit from some. Uh, you know, revision, shall we say. So we have some time left. So I'll open it up for people to uh, toss in questions or comments if you have any. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.